Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Today's reading is from Acts uh, chapter 4, verses 32 to 5, 10. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, and good morning, everybody. It's great to be sharing uh, with you here today, and good to see you all. Um, I'm up here smiling, as you can see, and generally, I think that's how people see me. I'm not usually perceived as a very angry or stern kind of guy. And overall, while that might be the case, There are definitely times where I've gotten really, really angry. Most often, as Rebecca, unfortunately just walked that way though, could attest, uh, is it's usually at myself, but whenever that anger is directed at another person, there seems to be a common sort of root cause, lying. When I'm in this state, um, it's not a pretty sight. I'm not proud of it. And uh, I'm even less proud of the fact that my son, Theo, has seen me uh, be that angry. Now, of course, he's three. He can't actually really lie, I don't think. Um, Imagination and reality are kind of mixed together in a soup right now in his mind. So it's a little difficult to really pin anything on him. Um, But in that moment, I felt it. Something was triggered there. And actually then, as I think back in my younger years, some of the worst things that I've said or I've done to someone were because I found out they lied to me. I can get, at times, obsessive and almost a single-minded, like, tunnel vision, uh, anger, and sort of vengeance mindset to even the score. 
Um, so there's a big trigger in there that I'm going to have to work out with my therapist. Um, something's definitely at, at the root here. But I suspect in this room, I'm not alone in terms of what you feel when you're you know, harmed by lies. Maybe it was someone lied to you directly or you were forced to live a lie. Thinking of uh, some especially painful examples from childhood that uh, I've talked to a couple people close to me and I'm allowed to share these two stories. Um, in one case, um, the lie that they had to live was uh, that was, uh, they, weren't, they were told they can't tell anyone that they get spankings because otherwise the police are going to show up, take them away, and they'll never see their family again. And that was put on the kids. In someone else's example, their parents were separated. It was nearly a divorce. And the kids, uh, or sorry, but when there was a family function with the extended family, dad came back and the kids had to pretend like nothing was wrong because we didn't want the rest of the, I guess, uh, the extended family to know that anything was there. And that still impacts them to this day. Being lied to can make us feel insecure. It can make us feel unimportant. The person lying maybe didn't you know, care enough or value you enough to tell you the truth. It can actually, in extreme cases, you can feel like all of reality is sort of shifting around you. It has this odd corrosive effect that when, you, when someone lies to you, it doesn't just hurt at that point. It begins eating away at your memories. You start going back and thinking, okay, what was it that I should have seen coming? Or it can even, even worse, I think, is it can take happy memories and turn them sour. Things that you remembered about someone suddenly aren't happy anymore. Marriages can break down because of them. Churches can be torn apart by lies, and even a nation can fail because of lies. With that much destructive power, it's kind of crazy how often humans do it. And uh, to kind of give you an idea of how big this is, I'll give you a couple bits of trivia. And so hopefully up on the screen there, you've got Bella DiPaolo. Um, she's a psychologist at the University of Virginia. And what she's found are these two interesting facts. Both men and women lie in approximately a fifth of their social exchanges lasting 10 or more minutes. And the second one is that over the course of a week, we deceive about 30% of the people that we have one-on-one -on -one interactions with. If you're like me, you're probably going to think, okay, over the next week, I better keep track of this. Uh, and, and I should also mention that I, I think in, inherent in this, there is a sliding scale of deception, right? We're going between like a, a slight tweak of the truth or a big fish story uh, all the way to actual real like nasty deceptions. But I, I think in this case, it's just in general. And so some of those little ones uh, might almost come out more, I guess, normally out of us. One last piece of trivia um, to kind of show how much of a role lying plays in our human lives. Victoria Talwar, who is a professor at McGill University, has done a lot of research into childhood development and how children you know, evolve in their understanding and their perceptions of reality. And uh, if I understand correctly here, basically what she's saying is that in an early age, children can't understand that the thought bubble, let's call it, if you think of a comics term, um, that my thought bubble differs from theirs, for example. Like, I could maybe be in a totally different room when Theo experiences something, but he may not be able to perceive that, you know, I, I don't have that same memory, because I, I wasn't there. 
once they are able to start seeing that, oh, someone else's thought bubble is different from mine. They didn't see this the way I did. Well, maybe I can make them see my thought bubble. In other words, they lie. And so it's basically that lying is considered an important milestone in childhood development by some researchers. Kind of crazy. And so as we continue our series, Behold Our God, I want us to grapple with that idea that unlike us, God is truthful. Uh, Last week, uh, Pastor Mike shared about the idea of God is holy. And one of the things that his holiness meant is that there are things that God cannot do. One of those things is that it is impossible for him to lie. In fact, in Hebrews 6.18, we see mentioned exactly that. It says, it is impossible for God to lie. But also that this is an unchangeable thing. So God being truth and 100% truthful is literally a bedrock of existence. So I guess I could close out there. Proof text found, uh, that's great. But really what I want to do today is unpack a little bit more about that. It's to say, okay, so what is it that drives us to be untruthful? Why is it important that God is truthful? And then what we're going to do about that. So to begin with, let's find out why lies are so prevalent in our human experience. And fortunately, I don't have to scan very far in the Bible to find a lot of examples. Um, The scripture reading today was the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And I suspect for most of you, that is not your favorite. I don't know if it's anyone's favorite story. Um, it, it almost feels, I know there was a lot of ink kind of spilled in this when I was reading about this, of you know, people feeling like this is some holdover from the Old Testament, and it, it, it feels odd, and there was all kinds of people writing stuff to try to cope with the fact of this, this really ugly, unhappy early church story. But it does serve a dual purpose, I think, in showing us a real example of why we lie, and the lengths we'll go to, but then also how seriously God can't deal with lies. It was probably an important lesson for the early church uh, especially. At the start of uh, the reading today, uh, and and it had to span two chapters, I'll go why in a minute, we see that the early church members had a practice of sharing things in common and that occasionally land was sold and the proceeds were given to the apostles to help top up sort of the, uh, the, the, the communal fund. So as far as the scope of that or the scale of that sort of giving, um, I don't know a ton about it, but I know at least that in the early empire era that we're in at this point in history with Rome is that home ownership or land ownership was mostly reserved just for the rich. Uh, there were, you know, maybe some people could you know, own something small, but a lot of uh, rentals and apartments, similar today with landlords that owned a big uh, plot of land and would rent it out to people. And so, just as today, obviously, we hear a lot about how home ownership in Canada is becoming less and less affordable, we can kind of use that almost as a barometer then for us to understand kind of how much money we're talking about. Um, the average home in Hamilton right now, I believe for July, was somewhere in the ballpark of $800,000. So, in today's term, I mean, you can imagine somebody saying, all right, sold my house, $800,000, local church, there you go. And that would be huge. That's a massive windfall for all but, you know, the the biggest of churches. And so, um, you know, in our world as well, I mean, you know, typical Canadian common sense is your home is your biggest asset and don't let anything uh, happen to it. And so you can imagine counterculturally this is shocking, and I think it would have been for them as well. And so there is a specific example of this given 
which is uh, Joseph, also called Barnabas. It's one of those situations. Uh, maybe, actually, I just kind of thought of this, is that maybe he got that name Barnabas because of this donation. I don't know. Um, but anyway, he sold a field and he gave all the money to the church. And I think there's an unfortunate situation here in terms of, you know, the chaptering of the Bible. There's a chapter break, but, you know, and it changes, I think, the way that often this story gets read and perceived. Because immediately after this, chapter 5 starts with, depending on the translation, now a man named, or but a man named Ananias. And so I think we're meant to understand, if, you, if we take it together, as Hannah read it earlier, that this happened potentially very soon after Joseph slash Barnabas uh, gave away his property. So Ananias and Sapphira, who before this we don't know much about them other than they must have been wealthy because they had land, um, is, uh, you know, we can assume that they were seeing this happen. And it might have actually spurred them on to do this. So they're thinking, okay, great, we're going to do the same thing. Look at all the potentially, I'm speculating, but praise and accolades, or everyone was so happy that Joseph slash Barnabas did this, so we should do it too. But in this case, they, they do it with a twist. They're both in on the scam where they're going to hold back a portion of it, but present it to the apostles as, you know, just like what he did, we did the same thing. Look at us. They still had a wad of cash hidden somewhere. Now, Peter at this point, I think, asks a really good question. Specifically, and the question I'm asking, why did they lie? And uh, why did they want specifically the apostles to believe, or the church to believe, here's all the money while they kept part of it back? And I think the tendency here is to think, okay, well, they were greedy. That's the, that's the root of their sin here, is that uh, they, they just loved money too much. But I think Peter kind of dismisses this, actually, even in the text itself. He says, for example, well, wasn't that property yours? After you sold it, the money was still yours. You could have done anything you wanted with it. But you concocted in this scheme that uh, you were going to present it to us 100% that you had sold everything, and this is every last penny. And so they wanted um, to appear righteous before the church or score points socially. Maybe their home was more expensive than everyone else's, and they thought this was a chance to be the biggest donor <laughs> of the church. And I'm not totally sure what the social order was like back then, but you know, just as big donations are met with a lot of love today, um, I, I'm sure it might have then. Or maybe they thought they'd get more privileged access to the apostles, um, and that's why they wanted to do it, but they still wanted to keep the money on the side. So really, this sort of, to boil this down, I think what this is saying is that one of the core reasons that we lie is because we want to impress people. The Bible also has some other examples of why we lie. Um, and there's a real case of like father like son uh, that I can share here. Um, and so in Genesis, there's the accounts uh, particularly of Abraham and Isaac. Genesis 12 recounts the story of Abraham going into Egypt during a famine. And so what he's telling his wife at this point when they're going into Egypt is like, look, you're a very beautiful woman. I don't know, like some guys might decide to kill me and take you for themselves. And so he asks her to say like, you know, so that it will go well for me, we will say that you're my sister. And the sick kind of irony here is that, uh, you know, he's doing this to save his own skin, but the end result for Sarah is the same. She ends up having to go live in Pharaoh's palace. 
And so, you know, not only, as I kind of alluded to earlier, not only is he directly lying, he's now making Sarah live a terrible lie. And so this is all kinds of ick for the patriarch of the church. So he's, he's afraid someone's going to kill him. Um, he's just saving his own skin. And a generation later, Genesis 26, we see Abraham's son Isaac does the exact same thing. This time, it's, the only difference really is instead of Egypt, uh, it's the, the king of the Philistines. And so both of these cases, it boiled down to why did they lie? fear. Or in particular, they were trying to get out of some kind of negative outcome for themselves, if I wanted to put that more generically. In Genesis 27, this family tree just keeps on giving examples. Um, So one generation later, we got Jacob. And uh, the story about how he, with his mother's help, deceive Isaac uh, to take the blessing that was meant for Esau, as uh, Isaac's basically on his deathbed. They're going to make a stew, some game meat, which is what Esau would have done for Isaac, uh, to try to make everything, you know, seem the same. And yep, here I am. I'm back already. Got the stew for you. Now, 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 give me the blessing. And it even gets outright silly of, you know, because apparently Esau was a really hairy guy, so they put, you know, baby goat hair on his hand, so in case Isaac touches him. It's almost silly, but, you know, you have to ask, okay, why such an elaborate lie? (laughs) Why go to such great lengths for this? And at the core of this, it's Jacob, I mean, yes, he wanted to take something that wasn't his, but it was lying and deceiving to get a more positive outcome for himself. Now, there's a whole lot of other examples that we can get into, and, you know, there's minutia about why we might lie, but I think I'll park it with these three major reasons for now. So to recap, we have, we want to impress others, or to curry favor with people in the church. We want to seem righteous. Um, The second reason is out of fear, or I say prevent negative outcomes. It could be, you know, obviously a kid uh, takes cookies out of the cookie jar, and then I don't want to get punished, so they lie. Alternatively is adults. Something goes bad at work, and we want to make sure that none of this falls back on us. And uh, and so we we spin things a bit to make sure that it's like, I wasn't even in the room. I don't know what's happening. Don't blame me. The last one is to get a positive outcome for ourselves, or, or basically to manipulate others to take something that isn't ours or to improve uh, the outcome that we would have normally gotten. And so it might be useful to kind of do a thought exercise here. So, you know, obviously I've covered, uh, and last week Mike talked about God's holiness, can't lie, got it. Intellectually, we can agree that is in the Bible, but like, let's take these. Uh, reasons we lie and see if they could, you know, is there any temptation for God? You might already know the answer to this, but hey, let's just kind of think through it a little bit. So first of all, God has no one to impress. Um, there's no one whose favor he needs. Um, the, the, the three members of the Trinity, very much living happy, they didn't need anything before anything was created and they don't need anything after. So there's no one whose favor they need to get. And uh, no need to exaggerate either. I mean, if we were all swapping, you know, stories, twisting the truth a bit to impress one another, I mean, God's there just like, I literally created all of existence. Like, there's nothing to, <laughs> there's nothing to, to change there. He, uh, he's, he has done it all. As far as fear, God's immortal, eternal. He, he's not afraid of dying. He's not afraid of anything. Who's going to punish him? And the last one is that God's will is carried out always, and nothing happens outside of his control. And so there's nothing for him to try to manipulate. 
He doesn't need to try to, you know, puppeteer us into things. Now, this one, I think that there could be a whole lot discussed of, okay, well, why is there so many intricate plots in the Old Testament of, of how God's will is brought about? And that's a great topic for another Sunday. <laughs> but uh, I, I think I could say that it, it isn't that God is trying to think like, huh, how do I get these guys to do what I want them to? Hmm, I'll have to lie. Don't think that's the case. And so with this in mind, we can know, of course, again, technically speaking, God can't lie. We also know that, uh, you know, regardless of whether it's impossible for him to not, that there's any motivation that we have for lying doesn't map to God. Um, he's always truthful because unlike us, he has no reason. So for all these reasons for lying, uh, applying to people equally, there is a bit of an uncomfortable question that we have to ask ourselves as we're standing in a church, or sitting, rather, um, is, okay, this is something that's natural to our own, uh, you know, seeped into the fibers of our DNA or our brain as our, as our uh, human side. But we've got the scriptures. We should know better. The Bible is not subtle about uh, what God thinks about lying. And so if we should know better, why is it that we're struggling too? So I want to go back into the stories for a minute and see if there's something that ties all these together. Sure, on the surface, there's all these reasons to lie, but what is it that really underpins this in these examples? So first, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't tell the troops in the hope, of course, that they would get uh, you know, the benefit uh, of appearing righteous before people, but keep that nest egg aside. And so the thing is, they knew the apostles were distributing the money, and it says in that verse, no one had any needs. You know, no one was going hungry. People had places to sleep. Presumably people were happy. Um, and so what's going on here? I think ultimately they think they needed to have a backup account, perhaps, just in case this whole church thing doesn't work out, you know? Maybe, you know, I want to make sure I've got something to fall back on, a retirement fund, for example. Maybe it was the case that to, they wanted, they, they lied to impress people, um, because if the church continued on, we want to be at the front of the line. We want to be one of the cool people. But in case it fails, we'll still be okay. And so at the heart of that is, did they actually really trust that God was going to provide for them or the church? I would say they didn't. Next, Abraham and Isaac. The startling thing about these two characters is that, uh, you know, they're lying out of fear for their lives. But just before all of that, God promised them they're going to be okay, directly in Revelation. And so if we look at the account of Abraham telling Sarah that to avoid getting killed, okay, you're, you're my sister, it's not even ten verses earlier that God promises the following. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's pretty hard to be a blessing or for a person to be made a great nation when you're dead. And so why is Abraham afraid? God told him it's going to be fine. His son Isaac does this, but even worse. It's not even four verses for this guy. And obviously I know, you know, verses are not necessarily a good marker of chronology, but based on the stories, it's not super far away. Um, and in this case, so for Isaac, God promises, well, don't go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and bless you. For you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. 
I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. They had God literally make this promise directly to them. Um, that they would protect. In Isaac's case, it's like, specifically, I want you to go here. And he's still afraid someone's going to kill him, even though God said, like, I'm with you, you're going into this land. And so their fear was so intense that they told these terrible lies. And they too, the bottom line here is they didn't trust that God was going to keep his word. Um, Also, for those of you that like to nerd out on details like me, it is important to note that at this point, Abraham... um, it hadn't been written of Abraham that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, so I think this shows some growth, right? Um, anyway, so in the case of Jacob, let's go to that next story. He lied and manipulated to get something that wasn't his. Um, there was actually a prophecy given as well, maybe not to him directly, but to his mother, who was involved in this, that the older would serve the younger. So why go out of their way? If this is something God's saying is going to happen, why do you need to take action to, to take this for yourself? Is it possible they did not trust God? I'm seeing a trend. One last one, I promise. Going back to the very beginning, the serpent's lie to Adam and Eve was, well, you'll certainly not die, for God knows that when you eat from the fruit uh, so of the tree of good knowledge, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so what he's saying here is basically, God doesn't have your best interests at heart. You know, he's, in a sense, he's saying like, no, 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 he's not telling you the full truth here. If you want to know it, you need this. You need to take matters into your own hands. You can't trust him. So if I haven't belabored this point enough, <laughs> I think it's possible there's a link between our impulses to lie and a lack of trust in God and his promises. I'll rattle off a few here without verses, if you'll, you'll forgive me. Um, but God promises um, in Scripture that we are loved, that we have a purpose given by him. We are chosen. We are accepted. We are forgiven. We have become a new creation. God promises that he's never going to leave us and that he began a new work in us. So as Christians, he has started something in us, and he will finish it. And many, many, many more promises. If we struggle to trust these promises that God made to us as Christians, as I know I do, maybe what we're trying to do is, in fact, take matters into our own hands to make the outcomes better for ourselves. We should know that we have God on our side, but like Ananias and Sapphira, are hiding the truth or lying, living lies, whatever we need to do, is our insurance policy. That's the amount of money that we're keeping back. Perhaps another reason, um, I I think of this as well, I mean, you know, in terms of how we might relate to one another. um, Is there a reason that we have trouble trusting that God is truthful because of our own relationships? Do we sometimes think of God as just another person? just because, you know, people have lied to us, people hurt us. We have some distrusted people, and then that kind of bleeds over into our relationship with him. Um, Basically, if we're not fully comprehending that God is truthful, um, then maybe that could be part of the challenge. And so we could take a minute to think through it, uh, is to say, like, if God were not truthful, think about what that might be like. What would be, if there's no truth found in him, What's the point of us telling the truth to each other? 
I don't know why we would bother. I mean, and, and then the other fact is, um, let's say that, uh, or sorry, I mean, also, how, how would people treat each other? I mean, you might be in constant fear that someone's going to swindle you. But if we knew there was a God, so let's say in this alternate universe, we have a Bible, and it's telling us about God, but that it's clear there, similar to that serpent's lie, that like, well, you know, sometimes he goes off and does his own thing. Uh, not all of his words are true. I mean, what do you even do with the Bible at that point if it's his revelation? How would you even build a faith when you're not even sure what words on the page are truthful? And I think it would be, you know, terrifying to think of a, a God that, uh, you know, I mean, either, you know, maybe he's, he's trying to impress us or, or, you know, puppeteer to manipulate us, uh, to gaslight us, maybe just, I don't know, for fun. It's really, really, really not cool. And uh, the other thing is, is that if we take this sort of idea of, you know, God is truthful, okay, so let's, in this alternate universe, we've got a God that isn't truthful. Well, that would be Satan himself. Jesus says in John 8, 44, that, of Satan, that he was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. Fortunately, we know this isn't the case. God does give us, he, he is that capital T truth to root our thinking in. Um, we can build on that. We can build faith around his solid foundation. He also gives, a, uh, or sorry, there's also an example of how uh, we should be. And we can take the Bible at its word here, that every word from God is true and we can trust him. But God did not stop at the words. It's not just that it's impossible for him to lie, or if we think through it, well, there's no reason for him to. He went one step further. Jesus came into the world to be the living embodiment of God's truth. The Gospel of John actually goes to great pains to highlight this. It's interesting to see how much more truth is mentioned in that Gospel. Um, and, and so that's, I think, one of the key things that John's trying to, to get us to understand is that Jesus is the truth that God wanted to tell us. Jesus is, as it says, the Word became flesh. And later, um, and this is an interesting one too, he says that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Truth was realized through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says in the famous passage, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Gospels paint a picture of a God that doesn't just say truth, but he comes to earth and shows it to us, models it for us so our feeble brains can understand it. The very essence of his truth was on display. And this is an important distinction, I think, in Christianity that uh, I, know I haven't really thought of too often, um, but it is distinctive from other religions. And I can take an example of uh, Muslim friends of mine uh, in engaging with them, hearing that, you know, word of God and, and what they think that is, is a very, very big focus on the specific words in a specific language. Every dot and cross and symbol must be identical. And that is the truth, the revelation that God had to say. But for the Christian, the truth of God is not words on a page, but a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. So, we have this high bar a perfect truth in God and, and his revelation through Jesus. And there is a call put on us to be truth in our world today. 
And I think, especially now, this sort of you know, post-modern, post-truth age that we're in, uh, a lot of people don't even know what truth is anymore. And so I think in that sense, the calling is just as, if not more important. Just a quick look at the news today, wherever you happen to get it. It's not a lot of truth on display, <laughs> and, and, and lots of contradictions here, there, and everywhere. Um, businesses. So, you know, all the people that we do business with, we, we're giving them money and for services and goods, and uh, they're super quick to lie and manipulate if they're caught in a nasty situation, uh, just to save face. How about the leaders of our countries? Political discourse today um, across the spectrum is, is borderline, or maybe it's fully narcissistic in the way that any of their failings or anything that doesn't go the way that it should uh, mistakes, they just get hand-waved away. Ah, d d don't worry about it, you're the problem. They'll deny, they'll attack, they'll reverse the roles, victim and offender, which is an abuse tactic, by the way. And like, these are the people that like, run uh, our, our businesses, our countries, media, social media is a big lie as well. And so for the average person, so for us sitting here now, getting a chance to hear uh, you know, the good news of God and the truth, it's different. For the average person out there, I think, you know, how much truth actually hits them in a given day? I think society is really suffering for it. It was happening before the pandemic, but I think afterwards we can definitely see, you know, something, people feel broken and they don't know what to believe or what they should do. And so we have a unique opportunity to show our neighbors uh, authenticity, if nothing else. Um, if we make a mistake, we should own it outright, right? Think about that. If, if anyone else they've seen in the news, they're not doing that. <laughs> um, maybe people at work are also, you know, just out for themselves. And so if we're authentic, if we genuinely ask for forgiveness and say, I failed at this, what a witness that could be. Think about the, the case of uh, interactions with people where they're used to hearing, you know, nothing much in detail, or, or people trying to paint the Instagram version of their lives. If they hear real authenticity from you, how much more might they trust you? And I think uh, as we think of the idea that uh, as we behold our God, um, there is something that uh, we're also supposed to be, which is a, in a sense a sort of a mirror. And so we're beholding God in His glory. We have access to Him. We can talk to Him, learn about Him. And our goal is to be a mirror, even if cracked or, or, you know, dusty, to try to reflect as much of that out as possible. And that that's sort of what we can, uh, we can think through as far as what we want to be in terms of truth. God is absolute truth, and we should try to reflect as much of that as possible so that people can see God through us. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.